Morning. Morning. You having a good week? <laughs> Three of us. Because <laughs> everybody else needs this morning, don't you? Hey, uh, my name is Rob, and I'm one of the ministers here at New Hope, and I'm excited to continue our series in the book of Nehemiah. If you have a Bible, you can open it up or turn it on uh, to Nehemiah chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hard-covered Bible in the seat in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, take that and keep it. That's our gift to you. Uh, you can write in it, mark it up. Uh, we want you to have that as a gift. Hey, uh, this morning, I want to ask you a question. Show of hands. How many of you vividly remember your baptism? Wow. Wow. That's good. I remember mine. I was 17 years old in a swimming pool in South Florida. And uh, I remember getting ready for this incredible moment where everything was becoming clear to me in that moment about who Jesus was and, and what Jesus had done for me. And I was ready to accept him as my uh, Lord and Savior. I remember being in the swimming pool. I remember going under the water and coming up out of the water and feeling this incredible sense of relief. And uh, all of these new friends that I had, I didn't grow up in church, and so I had all these friends at the time I thought were just weird, but they were just Christians. And they were all around the pool, and they were excited, and everybody was happy. And I remember having this profound sense of relief. And in 10 years of ministry, I don't know that anything tops that feeling when you watch somebody as they're getting prepared to be baptized, the excitement that they, they have. And then when they're coming up out of the water to see the relief because they've encountered Jesus and because they know what Jesus did for them and they know what it means. Uh, they know what Jesus dying on the cross and resurrecting means for them. And so uh, that's such an incredible moment. But in those same 10 years, I've noticed over and over again, that there is oftentimes a lot of excitement about following Jesus, but there, there's not always preparation for it. See, I don't think people are always prepared to follow Jesus. When life gets difficult, you see, here's, here's what I'm convinced of, that making a decision to follow Jesus, don't hear this wrong, but that's the easy part. Not easy to overcome your past, not easy to recognize what he's done for you, that's not what I mean, but that's the first step. The hard part comes in following Jesus in the day-to-day -day parts of your life. You see, the hard part comes when following Jesus isn't popular, when pressure and persecution are applied to your life, and it really becomes difficult to say yes to Jesus. Those are the harder moments. Ed Stetzer is a missiologist. All that means is that he studies uh, the culture of the church in America. And he writes for a, a magazine called Christianity Today, but he's often republished in other publications. And recently he published an article in Christianity Today that ran in USA Today and, and in other publications. And in this article, he says that 75% of Americans claim to follow Jesus. That number like blew my mind until I read the rest of the article. 75% of Americans claim some affiliation with Jesus. And he breaks this into three categories, three categories of that 75%. First category is this, the, the cultural Christians. And these are the Christians that uh, say, hey, I believe in God because kind of that's what the culture is kind of leaning me toward, my family culture, my experience has grown up. You, you've been, and maybe this is where part of your experience, hey, my mom went to this church, so I, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, or my family grew up this way, and so that's kind of what I'm a part of. It's the culture of my family, so that's where we're at. We oftentimes call uh, this uh, category of Christian the Christers. Right? They come to church on Christmas and Easter, and so Christer. Get it? All right, so it's just this kind of nominal cultural thing that they've accepted. 
He, he categorizes the second group of Christians, not cultural Christians, but congregational Christians. These are people who identify with a church, and that's it. And so I go to so-and-so church, or I grew up at this church, and, or I've been a part of this church. So they don't always attend, and they're not plugged in. They're just kind of associated with it, because that's the way it's been. You're a congregational Christian. The third section of the 75%, he categorizes as convictional Christians. And this is that percentage of those people that have a daily dynamic relationship with Jesus. I'd say it this way. They've invited Jesus to be a part of the everyday stuff of their life. They want Jesus to be a part of each and every area, each conversation. They pray. They're in God's word. And it's transforming, not just transformed. It did transform them, but it's continuing to transform who they are and who they're becoming. So you have Cultural Christians, congregational Christians, and convictional Christians. And I think the first two groups, if I might be so bold, maybe haven't fully encountered the real Jesus. You see, because as the pressure and the persecution are applied to their life, uh, and that increases, what decreases is their commitment to Jesus. See, when it's no longer popular, or it's not the, the cool thing to do, it's not easy, or until it's going to actually cost them something, or require that they change something about their life, or let go of something in their life, things are fine. But once those moments happen, hey, that's not what I signed up for. See, when I read my Bible, and as I've read my Bible, the Jesus that I encounter, it's either you love him or you hate him when you read through the Bible. You see, uh, people, they were either drawn to Jesus for one of two reasons. One, they couldn't stand him, and they wanted to bring harm to him, or they were so drawn to him uh, that it re-altered and changed everything about their life. They become dependent upon him. You see, Jesus is the kind of leader that did, he evoked the maximum amount of emotion out of people. You loved him or you hated him. But there's rarely anyone who encounters Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that are kind of wish-washy, like, eh, I could take it or leave it. And so when we encounter Christians in our culture today that are like apathetic toward Jesus, yeah, it's cool going to church, yeah, Jesus, eh, it's okay. I have to wonder, have they really encountered the real Jesus? Because the real Jesus evokes uh, extreme emotions in you. You're either rejecting him or you're so drawn to him you can't move without accepting him. You just, he brings out lots of emotion in people. And Nehemiah, this leader that we're following, he's the same kind of leader. You read through this book of, uh, of this guy who, who starts out with just having this burden on his heart. It just started out so simple for him. In Nehemiah chapter 1, he just, he hears the news about his people. Their city's been destroyed. Their wall has been leveled. Their, their city is in ruins, and it just burdens his heart, but it doesn't stay there. Nehemiah takes that burden, and it becomes this plea of desperation, Lord, please save them. But through these prayers that he begins to pray, he realizes, hey, God might be putting on my heart to be the solution to the very prayer that I'm praying. And has God ever done that in your life? Lord, please help. Lord, please do this. And the Lord's like, I will. And guess who's going to do it? And so this burden becomes this plea of desperation, which then becomes a conviction toward action, but a conviction with some obstacles in its way, where if I'm really going to follow God, I have to count the cost because it could cost me my life. And then he, he evokes the courage because of his relationship with God and his meditation upon the word of God. He gets the courage to act and he finally does act. And you begin to see people are either drawn to it, and we're going to see today they're very drawn to this, or they want to hurt him and they want to stop him. But rarely do they come to Nehemiah and say, eh, take it or leave it. That's not the reaction that Nehemiah gets. It's not the reaction that Jesus gets. 
when people follow him. See, what I love about Nehemiah 1 and 2 is we get to see this four to six month window in the life of this young leader as he begins to mature and grow. Uh, This burden becoming a conviction, becoming courage, becoming action is an incredible display of humble maturity. That's how I categorize it. I love watching this guy because he's always learning. He's never coming on the scene thinking, I've got it all figured out. I'm the guy. I know what we're doing. We're going to do this, this, and this. He's always taking different angles. He's always learning. He's always open to continuing to grow and mature, which is the sign of an incredible leader. But what you begin to see is the people that choose to count the cost and follow him, you begin to see some characteristics of what it means to, have, to be an incredible follower. You begin to see these people that realize if we're going to follow this guy, this isn't going to be easy. If we're going to follow this guy, it's going to require a lot out of us. And you see the comparison. If we're going to follow this guy, essentially what they're saying is we can't be cultural or congregational followers. We've got to be convicted. We've got to count the cost. This won't always be easy. And so they begin to move forward and follow him. I'm reminded of a story. I don't know if you're a fan of this or not, but let me fill you in a little bit. Um, I'm I'm a fan of C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis wrote a a series of uh, books that are just incredible. They've become movies. Some of you are like, there's books? There are books behind the series, The Chronicles of Narnia. All right, they started out as books, believe it or not. But I'm going to put two pictures up on the screen from the movie because I want you to hear the story of Reepicheep. He's one of the characters in the books He's this small mouse, this valiant mouse, who's an incredible swordsman, or swords mouse, however you'd say it. But he's, he's an incredible warrior and soldier, and he is driven by his deep love for his king and his king's prince, Aslan and Prince Caspian. And so he goes and he battles for them and defends their honor and defends their courage, and, and he, he just displays the heart of an incredible leader. And there's this scene where it seems as though he's going to die. And he would have died if it wasn't for little Lucy, a little girl with a special potion inside of a diamond bottle. And she puts the drops on Reepicheep and he comes back to life. And in this scene, he jumps uh, back to life, almost resurrecting from the dead. And he looks at King Aslan and he notices he's lost his tail in the battle. And he begins to plead with Aslan, please restore my tail. I've got to have my tail. It was a source of honor for him to have this tail. Without my tail, I have no honor. And Aslan begins to question back and says, I think you've placed too much stock in this tail. I think you care too much, that too much honor has been given to the tail. But then Aslan looks beyond Reepicheep to all of his followers, and he notices something, and he asks him this question. Why have your followers drawn their swords? Do they not realize I'm a lion? Like, (laughs) why have they drawn their swords? To which... The second in command says this, We are all waiting to cut off our own tails if our chief must go without his. We've counted the cost. We will not bear the shame of wearing an honor, which is denied to the high mouse. And Aslan's response is, Ah, you have conquered me. You have great hearts. Not for the sake of your dignity, Reepicheep, but for the love that is between you and your followers. You can have your tail back. You see, these followers had understood with great clarity who their leader was. Their leader had gone before them. Their leader had sacrificed for them. Their leader had already counted the cost. So when their leader requested of them that they count the cost, that they encountered the real version of him, they were willing to go to any ends to follow their leader. I see the same thing in the followers of Nehemiah. In chapter 2, the second part of chapter 2, we're going to jump in and explore 
what it looks like for Nehemiah to take the courage to lead, but into chapter 3, there's a list of names. And I'm not going to read through the list of names, but it's not because I'm nervous about that or don't want to. It's, I want to bring my attention and focus to something, and I don't want to make a slight joke about, oh, they're hard names, just we always skip that part, because I don't think you should. I think every word in the Word of God is worth reading. Every name, every single part of it. And so I want to encourage you to read chapter 3. But what we're going to see in the tail end of chapter 2 and going into chapter 3 is an incredible display of leadership. But a question that kept coming to my mind this week as I was studying and preparing was, what does it really mean? What does it look like to be a loyal follower? Because in the kingdom of God, before anyone's a great leader, they have to learn to be a great follower. Before you're entrusted with great responsibility, you need to prove that you're willing to follow. I mean, this is a principle, and Nehemiah's proved, and he's going to prove again here in chapter 2, that he's willing to follow God anywhere, and as a result, God entrusts him with a great following to accomplish his purposes in this life. And so in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, we're going to start in verse 9. It says this, Nehemiah's words, Then I came to the governors of the province behind the beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. So if you remember in chapter 2, Nehemiah had come before the king, and in my favorite verse, maybe, in, in the whole Old Testament, I don't want to say that because then I'll end up saying it again in like three sermons, and you're going to say, but I love chapter 2, verse 4, because in the presence of the king, Nehemiah is talking to the king in this very intense moment, and yet he's also requesting God to give him the words in that moment. And so as he speaks to the king, he's inviting God, convictional follower. He's inviting God even into the difficult conversations. And God grants him favor in the sight of this guy because of his hand of provision over Nehemiah. Nehemiah gets all the paperwork to go back to his home to begin the rebuilding process. He arrives on the scenes, on the scene. Now, the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. So you're not messing with Nehemiah when he comes on the scene. He's guarded well. But when Sambalot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So they come on the scene, and immediately, immediate, before the work ever starts, as a reader of this narrative, you begin to see opposition is already waiting. It's not like if you're going to follow Nehemiah, there might someday sort of kind of be some opposition. It's like you see the opposition, you know this is going to be difficult before you ever decide to begin working. These guys are already on the scene. They've been oppressing these people for years. And now this leader comes along and gives them the courage to begin to work. And these leaders don't like it. Now, these leaders in the community, they're, not, they're putting the pressure on. So these people know, if I'm going to follow Nehemiah, I have to count the cost. So I went to Jerusalem, verse 11, and I was there for three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into, the heart, into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night. So he's going out kind of putting himself in harm's way. He goes out by night to the valley gate and to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. Dung gate, that's not going to be fun to rebuild, all right? It's the, it is, yeah, think of it like that. It's horrible, this horrible place where people put their trash and their waste out this gate of the city walls. So he goes and inspects that part of the walls of Jerusalem. They were broken down and its gates had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the, off, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were uh, to do the work. So he goes out secretly, and what, what's happening here is he's going to be able to tell them, I've gone ahead of you. I've inspected all of this. I know your situation. I know where you're coming from. I'm not coming in here with some sort of clout. 
I'm coming in here and I went and put myself in harm's way. I've scouted the work. I'm a leader that you can trust. So he comes on the scene. It's not just coming on the scene with the king's power and authority, though he had that. He comes on the scene and immediately puts that aside and proves to the people he's not here riding some authority trip. He's humbling himself. He's willing to put himself at harm's way, knowing that these people, if they're going to make a decision to follow him, will also be putting themselves in harm's way. You see, when Jesus calls us to follow him, much like Nehemiah calling these people to follow him, he wants us to count the cost. I mean, Jesus told us, in this life you will have trouble. In this life you will have difficulty, but take heart, I've already overcome the world. See, we already know our king's gone before us. And so following him, though we must count the cost, we already know how it works out. And so Nehemiah comes in and he wants to tell the people and inspire them to say, hey, we already know how this is going to work out because we know who we're following. So in verse 17, he said, I said to them, you see the trouble that we're in now, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned. Come, let us build the walls of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, because of who Nehemiah is following, they're now willing to follow Nehemiah. Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the, for the good work. It's only because Nehemiah is following God so closely that these people understand, we know how this is going to end, so we're willing to endure the difficulty of the work that God has called us to. Verse 19, But when Sambalot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they, were, they jeered at us and they despised us and they said, What is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And I love Nehemiah's response. He says he responded to them, the God of heaven, the God of heaven is going to make us prosper. Not our work, not what we're doing, not our hands. It's God and the hand of provision that he's put over us that will see us uh, to victory and to completion. And we, his servants, will rise and build, but you have no portion or right to claim in Jerusalem. This word prosper that Nehemiah mentions here is the same word used in Psalm chapter 1 and Joshua chapter 1, and it essentially means those who meditate on the word of God, who follow the promises of God, will prosper. This is not a health and wealth type thing. God, God's going to make us comfortable, and he's going to make us um, wealthy, and, and if we follow him, everything's going to work out, and everything's going to be comfortable. It's quite the opposite. Nehemiah's painting this picture. If you're going to follow, it's going to be difficult, at times painful, at times extremely uncomfortable, but so worth it. Why? Because God has called us to this work. He's already seen it through. And when this city's rebuilt, he'll receive the glory and all people will begin to see how great the God that we follow is. You see, it wasn't about Nehemiah. It wasn't about what he was capable of doing. The entire time he's pointing to Jesus, he's pointing to God. And this is a characteristic of good leadership. It's the humble ability to realize we don't build anything worth lasting in this world. We just point to Jesus. That's good leadership. That's godly leadership. Point to Jesus. Have people understand what it means to count the cost. You see, Nehemiah could have easily now going into chapter 3. You go into chapter 3 and you begin to see name after name after name. And I'm reading that this week and I'm thinking, man, he named all these people. So-and-so who had the ability to do this, worked on this part of the wall. And so-and-so, his, his family member did this and this person did this. And all these people from all these different walks of life with all of these talents and all of these ability, abilities come together for this one goal of bringing God glory. 
And no one person got the credit because all of these people contributed. And if you removed one of them, Nehemiah is really emphasizing you remove one person, you remove their ability, you remove their ability, we don't get this project done. We need all hands on deck, is what he's saying. We had people that were, he's saying, we had people that were willing to go to the, the dung gate where the trash and waste were thrown. And they didn't go and complain and whine. Why don't I get to go to the other side where it's glorious and comfortable? I said, no, if this needs to be done, I'm going to do it. And all of these followers, they humbled themselves and there was no complaining and there was no whining and there was no griping. Why? Because the vision was so clear. We have to rebuild this wall to protect God's people, to bring God glory, and ultimately to help all other people see how great our God is. You see, the same is true in the church. We all are called to bring all of our talents, all of our abilities, what we have to offer to the table. And different people serve in different capacities, but it's all for one goal. And it's not your comfort. It's not to make you feel good. Those might happen, but that's not the goal. The goal is to say, look how great our God is. Look how great our God is. And that the world might look and see how incredible our God is. You know, as I'm studying this week, I thought, let me look back and do like a compare and contrast with Nehemiah 2 and 3 and see like when else have God's people come together to do a project of this significance. And I see a stark contrast between Nehemiah 2 and 3 and Genesis 11 where the people of the earth come together and they've got this goal. And they, they come together, they want to build this tower to the heavens. And you begin to realize that's a building project, very similar to what they're doing in Nehemiah. How does that project go? And if you know the, the Bible, you know in Genesis 11, the people come together, they want to rebuild a city and rebuild a tower. And here's what they say. Verse 4 of Genesis 11. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a great city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. A little bit different than the message of Nehemiah. You see, somebody stood up and said, Hey, guys, let's build this city and build this tower, because when it's done, we're going to be awesome. So let's do this. Nothing will stop us. Nothing will be able to stop us if we build this tower in this city. Let's do it. Now look, on the outside, that looks like good leadership. I mean, you're able to gather all of these people to contribute to a project. That looks like great leadership. You're able to get people to do very similar things to what was going on in Nehemiah. Uh, different tasks, different abilities, and everybody comes together and they start building this great project. It looks on the outside like, man, that's, in, that's incredible leadership, incredible loyal followers. Until you get to verse 4 and you remember, why are they doing it? No mention of God's glory, no mention of God getting the credit. So their project doesn't last. There's no significance to it. It doesn't go on and on. And what, what's really fascinating about Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, you don't read a list of all of the names of the people that contributed to the project. And I got to wonder why not? Why does Nehemiah choose to list the names of all of the people that contributed to this project? And yet in the Tower of Babel, we're not reading that. Why? Because when you honor God, God honors you. When you humble yourself before him, he exalts you. That's not your motivation for doing it. Your motivation has to be pure or it doesn't work. But the motivation of these followers is to say, I want to make God famous. I want to make the Lord famous. And so we want to go and rebuild this wall because ultimately it's for him. And the same is true in the church. What is our motivation for coming to church? What is your motivation for following Jesus if you've chosen to follow him? Is our motivation, I want to come and be a part of a, a community of people that contribute so much to the glory of God so that everybody around me begins to see how great my God is. 
That means I'm not coming to church and complaining about the music. I'm not coming to church and complaining about what I like and what I don't like. I'm not coming to church and getting so narrow-minded about preferences that I miss the bigger goal, the bigger objective, which is God's glory. And so the questions you begin to ask yourself as a loyal follower in those situations are very similar to what the people in Nehemiah would have been asking. I got to build the, the dung gate? All right, let me see how this is working. Man, the rest of the wall is going up. I better get this gate up. Because it's gonna, without this gate, man, it doesn't work. And so you begin to ask questions. What, what's working here? Are we, are we doing a good job of helping other people see how great our God is? And how can I contribute to that? What can I bring to the table? I'm willing to do anything as, as long as God receives the glory and people see how great my God is. I love the way that William Temple says this. William Temple said these words, The church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. See, this is about God's glory and that others might come to see how incredible he is. That others might get connected to Jesus, reconnected to their purpose. See, that's the contrast, the Tower of Babel. But what about comparing something we're called to do to the rebuilding of the wall in chapters 2 and 3 of Nehemiah? And I immediately come to the New Testament, and I realize God's people have always been builders. And God has always been concerned with their motivation for building. It's like always a key component. When God asks people to build something, he always checks their heart and their motivation. Jesus is no different. So Jesus comes on the scene and he, he lays out the Sermon on the Mount, which we just got done studying all summer. And he gets to the end of the Sermon on the Mount after telling them, this is how you build, this is why you build, and really saying, forget everything else. It's really about the condition of your heart. If you want to live a life that matters, you want to live a life that has significance, what matters most is the condition of your heart, the focus of your heart, the object of your affection, and whether or not it's Jesus. It's not about what you portray. It's not about what ability you have. It's not about what you bring to the table as much as it is, Lord, I want to bring you glory. You are the object of my affection. And so Jesus gets to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, you're a builder, and you're building a life. So let me remind you how you're supposed to approach building that life. Matthew 7, Jesus says these words. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. So Jesus says, if you want to be a good builder, what matters the most is who you're following. You want to build a good life? The first question to ask is, who am I following? Because the storms are coming. They are coming. Jesus doesn't say if a storm comes. He says, and when the storms came. And so one of the questions you ask in the midst of tragedy and difficulty and pain and suffering is, who am I following? Is my whole life falling apart because my foundation wasn't set? And Jesus continues. He says, and everyone who hears these words of mine and they don't listen to them, they're going to be like a foolish person who built his, his house or his life, built his whole life on the sand. And when those storms came, it crashed that life down. And it was a great crash because there was no foundation left to rebuild upon. And Jesus is saying, we're all builders. And the most important part of the life that you're building is who you're following. Who is it that you're following in the pursuit of the life that you're living? Two things about the life that you're building. One is that we're all constructing a life with different types of materials. And we're bringing different truths into our life. And so you need to really pay attention into what you're allowing in because it's contributing to what's building your life. But I think even not more important, but just as important as this, you don't build that life by yourself. Nowhere in the Bible does God say, go and live for me alone. 
Go and live for me and invite nobody in to hold you accountable. Go and live for me and do great things for me and have nobody checking your heart and and your actions and your motivations. Never does he say that. He says the opposite. Go and live this great life for me and make sure other people can come in and contribute to the life that you're building. So when the storms come, the foundation is secure. And that's what Nehemiah is telling these people. Hey, we're going to build this wall, but the opposition's coming. We're not building a wall for the looks. We're building a wall because the opposition's coming, and we want to be ready when it gets here with a solid foundation and a wall that will withstand the attack of the enemy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way. He's a famous German theologian. I'm going to put a quote up, and then I'll explain it. But he says this about Christian community and the importance of building your life with other people. If we, if we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship, the Christian community in which we have been placed, even where there is no great experience, so the experience isn't wonderful and great, no discoverable riches, but such weakness, small faith and difficulty, even in those moments we're thanking God for the church. If, on the contrary, we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry and petty, so far from what we expected, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship or our, to, our community to grow us according to the measure and the riches which are there for us all in Jesus Christ. And so what Bonhoeffer is saying is this, when you don't allow the community of God to participate in the building of your life, and instead when you come to church, all you do is complain and whine about things, or when you do get around other Christians, it's all, woe is me, and this isn't good, and this is... If you're not giving thanks for the community that God gave you to hold you accountable... The only person you're robbing of the riches that Jesus has for you, the the joy and the fulfillment you'll get from living the life he's called you to, is you. You're the only person. There's so many times in my life where I've been my own worst enemy. I don't know about you if you'd agree with that, but there are so many times when the only thing that's prevented me from doing great things for the Lord is my own pride and my lack of willingness to allow people to hold me accountable and to come in and speak to my heart. And Jesus is saying here, you've got to do that. The Bible uses this analogy when it speaks of this. It talks of this idea of iron sharpening iron. Anybody ever sharpened a blade before? Show of hands. I just, I've been sharpening blades all the way uh, back uh, in first service was my first time, actually. Uh, <laughs> no kidding. When the Bible says iron sharpening iron, it's this picture of a blade being sharpened. Like when you're in a Christian community and you're actually counted the cost for following Jesus, and it's, it's not just this thing you do, because you're not a cultural Christian, and you're not a congregational Christian that just kind of comes in because you've always come here, but you're a convicted Christian that says, I want to welcome accountability in my life. It's like sharpening a blade. It's like you, you're taking the things. The Bible calls this sanctification. What it really means is giving more and more of yourself to Jesus. This isn't comfortable. You're literally taking pieces of this blade and scraping them off. The the blade doesn't like it in the moment. You're literally ripping pieces off of this blade, and it's painful and it's difficult. And the Bible says that's accountability. That's biblical accountability. That's me coming in saying there's parts of my life that maybe I don't even see that are preventing me from living out the purpose I was created for. And so God says, I've given you a solution to that. It's called the church. And you get into these smaller groups of people and you begin to ask tough questions and it begins to painfully, sometimes messy, extremely uncomfortable, but it pulls those things off of your life. And what's fascinating is that even though sharpening a blade is no fun for the blade, when that pain is over, this blade is better able to do what it was created for. 
And the same thing is true in your life when you open your life to real biblical accountability. Real Christian community. The same thing's true. It is painful. I don't want to let that out of my life. I don't want to confess that sin. That's uncomfortable. I'm scared of these consequences. I don't know what to do. But I'm going to trust that even though it'll be painful and messy, when it's over, I will be far better connected to the reason I was created. To bring glory to God and advance his kingdom through making disciples. You see, many of you do this well here at New Hope. I'm in a group myself. We do our best to meet every Friday night. Uh, sometimes we can't, sometimes we can't. But when we get together, it's straight up chaos, if I'm being honest, right? Uh, you've got all these different kids. You've got Aaron Rayum. He's a minority in a sorority. He's got three little girls. You've got me uh, and my kids, and we keep adding to that. And you've got uh, the dolls and you, just all these people. And we're adding more. We're really good at that as a group. We just keep adding babies. It's, it's awesome. And, and so you have like 15 kids in this group, and you get there, it's like, this should be a television show, not a discipleship group. And we, we arrive on the scene, and the kids are running around, and, and things are kind of chaotic and wild, and they're playing over here, and they're doing this. And then it gets quiet, and you know what it's like when a bunch of kids get quiet. You're like, something's wrong. You smell that? Is something burning? Someone go check on them. <laughs> go check on those kids. And, and, and in the midst of all of the chaos, we're asking each other tough questions. We're, we're talking about God's word. We're saying, how are you doing with the Lord? What sins are you struggling with? And we're confessing and we're praying with one another in the midst of it all. And it's not always fun. It, there's times where the sharpening gets really, really uncomfortable. You see, some of you are doing that, but others of you, you're not doing that very well. You're just coming and you're participating in, in Sunday morning. And here's the thing, don't hear this wrong. We want you here. That is an incredible place to start right here in your seat. It's not the greatest place to stay. It's not. Some of you might come here because it's a, it's a comfortable place to be, and that's okay, that's good. You might like the music, you might like the preaching, you might like the people, just kind of on Sunday morning walking around. And here's the thing. When the storm hits, those things won't sustain you. They won't. What you need in that moment of difficulty is a room full of people that know you well and you know them well. You need a room full of people where when they speak to you in those difficult moments, their words matter. They carry weight in your heart. Why? Because those people have bled with you. They've cried with you. They've laughed with you. They've done so many things with you. They've prayed with you. They've seen the successes and the difficulties. They've sharpened your blade over and over and over again. So when that storm hits, they're right there with you to help you rebuild that wall. This is what you need. So let me be blunt. Before we become good leaders of any area, I'm convinced of this, we have to become faithful followers who count the cost, who get uncomfortable, who see beyond our discomfort to know that the joy is coming in the morning where the Lord will take this sharpening and reconnect me to my purpose. And so I want to invite you, if you're not in a group, to grab one of these blue cards. They're right out there on the information tables. And you fill this card out. And it might just be an uncomfortable step. I'm just going to take a step, and we're going to walk with you each step of the way. We're not asking you to jump in the deep end, but you fill this card out. You go down that hallway by the restrooms on the opposite side of the lobby, and you take that card after you filled it out, and there's a box on the wall that says Staff Dropbox, and you put this card in there. And then we will come and follow up with you and get you the information about getting into one of these communities. But can I challenge those of you that are in a group, or maybe you're leading a group, can we stop playing around? Can we stop just showing up to each other's house just to have a good dinner and laugh and then go home? Some of you do it well, but others, we, we need to get serious. 
That when we show up, we're not only studying the Bible. We're studying the Bible, but that's not all we're doing. We're asking tough questions, getting into the difficulty. We're actually showing up, and we're realizing there are some things that I might not even see on my life, and when I show up to group, it might not be comfortable, but I've got to sharpen this blade so that I can reconnect with my purpose and help advance the kingdom. Here's the thing. The advancement of God's kingdom, according to God's decision, depends on God's people coming together to live and work for the purpose and the glory of God. So my question to you this morning is, will you take your next step in contributing to the advancement of his kingdom? Let's pray.